morning. Just excited to have you here this morning. And I'd just like to say that, you know, when you're speaking to people, it's far more exciting than speaking to three cameras. I just have to say that right now. So it's a delight that you're here. I want to just have a stand one more time, if you don't mind. We're going to go to the Lord in prayer. And, you know, God is just doing such amazing things. A lady shared with me in the first service that her husband actually had a stroke, but they caught it immediately, and uh, he was able to fully recover. That happened last Sunday, so she was just rejoicing in the grace of God. And I don't know uh, what testimony you have, how God has heard you cry, answered your prayer, or maybe you're here this morning and say, man, I have such great needs, you know, because I think there's two classes of people every Sunday. There are those that are rejoicing, right, because God's done some amazing thing in their life, and then there's some that are kind of lamenting, going through a difficult time and they're just feeling maybe overwhelmed and it's great to come in the house of the Lord even when we don't feel excited we can cast all our cares on him and he hears our cry and my prayer always is that when you leave this place your spirits will lift and the burdens will be lifted as well so let's pray this morning how many here you've come with a need this morning could be a relational need a financial need it could be a physical need we're going to believe with God for, for you as well. How many here? This is, you have a need this morning. We want to just lift those up before God. That's great. We're going to pray. Let's do it. Father, I just want to thank you this morning how gracious you are. And that, Lord, as I read through your word, I see how you hear the cry of, of humanity in our weakness, in our struggle, in our oppression, and uh, in our need. And I pray today, Lord, that people will respond to you today. They'll hear your voice. Uh, Hearts will be open. Reconciliation with you will occur, Father. I pray as well that supernaturally you'll touch sick bodies, that you'll quicken, make alive, make uh, yourself known in healing. You'll make yourself known in provision, Father, because you care about us, Lord. And I even pray that relationships will be restored among people who are having difficulty, even including uh, families, marriages, whatever the issue is, Lord, may things come to light today and that will bring hope and healing and grace in those situations. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to continue our series of messages from the book of Proverbs. Uh, A few years ago, I don't remember how many now, but Patty and I and one of the families from the church, we went on a vacation together to Boston. How many have ever been to Boston? Anybody here? You know, Boston is, I've been there a few times. It's such an amazing city. Uh, I love history. You get to see, you know, a lot of things that happened in the beginnings of the early colonial period in the United States. And so we went on all those tours, you know, toured the harbor, toured this, toured that. And one of the reasons we went is we went to famed Fenway Baseball Park where they play baseball. And we had tickets to see the Toronto Blue Jays play the Boston Red Sox. And it was really a lot of fun. And I don't know if you know this, but Fenway is the oldest baseball park in the major leagues. It's over 100, it's, yeah, it's over 100 years old. Isn't that amazing? It's very iconic. Uh, it's different. And that's one thing I like about baseball. There are all those parks that are a lot different. And this is one of the fabled parks. And they give you a tour. And so we went on this tour and we were walking along. And, and I don't know if you, any of you have ever seen Fenway, but it's a very unique baseball field because in the, uh, it, it's uh, left... No, okay, I got to get this right. I think it's, okay, it's in left field. In left field is what they call the green monster. It's a solid wall. And some of the most expensive seats, you actually sit 
on the Green Monster. And so we, we toured the, walked on the Green Monster. Of course, we didn't pay for tickets there, but we had really good seats anyways. We didn't need to sit there. We were, we were in an even better place, I thought. Anyway, so we're, we're there. And then eventually we went to um, right field. And in right field, it's just like a sea of green bleachers in the back there, out in the outfield. And there's one seat. It's a red seat all by its lonesome. And it has a historical significance because that's the seat that Ted Williams, a very legendary baseball player, hit the longest home run in that field. It went 501 feet. Unfortunately, it was a very sunny day, and the guy that was sitting there watching the game, the ball hit him right on the head. <laughs> he said, good thing I wasn't standing up. That's all he had to say about that. The bad part was he said, I didn't even get the baseball, you know, but he survived that experience. But anyways, you know, Ted Williams, uh, if you know anything about Major League Baseball, is a legendary person. And... He was actually 40 years old in 1959. He was playing for the Red Sox, and he had a pinched nerves. And, and Williams said, it was so painful, I could hardly turn my head to even look at the pitcher. And, and, and as amazing as that is, for the first time in his major league career, he batted under 300. Now, if you don't know baseball, that's a good batting average over 300. He had never been below 300, but that year, he batted 254. And he had only 10 home runs. And so Williams at that time was the highest salary player in sports uh, at that time. And he was making $125,000 a year. Uh, that's interesting, 1959. I wonder what major league players would have thought of that today, you know. Anyways, the next year the Red Sox offered him the same contract. And he said, I told them I couldn't sign that contract unless they give me the full pay cut which the players that had negotiated, you couldn't be reduced below 28%. So he took 28% pay cut, which really he was cutting his own salary by $35,000. Now that's another thing. How many players today would take a 28% pay cut because they're not playing as well, right? But he did that. And then I started you know, doing a little more research about Ted Williams. And twice in his career, he took time away from baseball because he served in the armed forces during World War II and then came back and resumed playing. And then later on in the Korean conflict, he left baseball again and went and fought in the Korean conflict. So it was just an amazing person. Uh, it says a lot about his character. You know, Michael Green reports and published the following regarding the nature of character. Your ideal is what you wish you were. Your reputation is what people say you are. But your character is what you are. And the wisdom writers and Proverbs are constantly challenging us to examine our values and embrace those values that will help you and I grow to become godly, that will help us to stay on that path of wisdom or that path of righteousness. And I've been pointing out to you, it's, it's more of a narrow path. Not, most people aren't on that path today. And Jesus said that himself in his Sermon on the Mount. He said, broad is the way that leads to destruction. Many people are on that path. But he said, narrow is the gate and narrow is the way, you know, to walk in uh, righteousness. So I think one of the great challenges is that we face with is the strength of the cultural current and there's always a pressure to compromise who we are for fame and fortune. Isn't that true? And I'm going to make an argument today with the wisdom writers that who you are, your character, is more important than what you acquire. In other words, when you think about it, at the end of life, it's not how much you have that matters. 
It's who you were as a person that really counted. And so the wisdom writers are going to bring this out in full force to us today. And here in these first 16 verses of Proverbs 22, we see this issue being addressed, this issue of character. And I want to take a look just at two values that are going to speak to the issue of riches, relationships, and ultimately the reward when we live the right way. And so I'm going to look at just two of them. The first value that we're going to look at, I call it the value of the wise or the value of the godly person or the value of the righteous person. Making this the right value in your life is placing character over riches. Now, I think when we have the right kind of character, it gives us a proper perspective on wealth. And see, for the wisdom writers, wealth uh, is never depreciated. But we need to understand that when God allows us to have some measure of wealth, it's for a purpose, that God actually gives us the wealth so that you and I can use it for something far more significant and far more important. And that lends itself to becoming the right kind of person. Now, one of the things that I want to point out to all of us here today is that we read these Proverbs through a certain lens. How many know that's true? You're reading these Proverbs through your background. You're reading these Proverbs through your, you know, this current culture. I mean, that's only fair. We all grew up in a family. We all, you know, are studying a certain element. And so we read it just at face value. And I'm not saying that's wrong. But let me give us a little deeper understanding of where these people were at when they were actually writing these, these values. Now, if we were living today in the Middle East, if we were living in Asia, we would probably see these problems just a little bit differently because of their cultural background. And so John Pilch in his book entitled The Cultural Life Settings of the Proverbs wants to remind us that these proverbs are framed within a culture called honor and shame. It's an honor-shame culture. And what that really simply means is this, that we in North America, Europe, we kind of live in this more of an individualistic mindset. We're looking at ourselves and we're evaluating our lives based on what we're currently and personally doing. But in, the, in a different culture, in a shame-honor culture, you're far more concerned about what your family thinks. You're not just living for yourself. You're actually, every decision you make affects your entire family. And you are, you are basically seen as a unit. And so the culture looks at you not as an individual, but as a family unit. Isn't that a lot different, isn't it? And so you can actually bring shame or you bring honor to your family, and not just to your current family. In the ancient world, you were bringing shame and honor as a a direct lineage of your descendants. And so when they would have a funeral procession, let's say in ancient Rome, they would, especially if you were affluent, you'd bring out all of these, they'd actually take a a mask. They'd make a mask of a person that had passed away and they'd keep it in their home. And so at funeral services, they'd drag out all these masks. And you were trying to live to bring honor to your ancestors. And we see that in Asian cultures today. They still do that. They're very concerned about what the ancestors think about their current behavior. And so he writes this. He says, the rich and poor are not primarily economic terms. In ancient Mina, that's, I I put you, to help you know what he means, the Middle East and North African societies. Basically, rich people have a surplus and are obliged to share it as patrons with those in need. Now, if you were to study ancient Rome, you start finding out that the affluent person, uh, a householder, was called a patron. And he not only would have slaves, but he would also have people called clients. And they would come every morning. And he would actually support a huge group of people. 
And financially, he'd give them positions, resources, opportunities. Uh, but he would also, these clients would then speak well of him. And if he had political aspirations, they would be loyal to him and his cause. So that's the idea of a patron. Now, how many, I, I mean, years ago I saw this. I wasn't even a Christian then. How many ever seen mafia movies? Anybody ever seen a mafia movie? Okay, you know the godfathers in those movies? That's the patron idea. See, that comes all the way down from ancient Rome. They're still focusing and developed out of that concept. So, the poor people, I mean, let's go back here. If a rich person does not share, the word rich actually should be translated and interpreted as greedy. Isn't that interesting? So, in the ancient world, if you were wealthy, you actually used your wealth not only for yourself, but also to share with others less fortunate, and you were considered a benefactor, a patron. But if you, you know, kept it to yourself, you were perceived as being a greedy person. And so when Jesus tells the story of that parable of the rich man, remember, what is he doing with his riches? Instead of helping others, what is he doing? He's building bigger barns. He's focused on himself. And so that's a negative idea from the scriptures. Poor people, on the other hand, are powerless or unable to fend for themselves. Thus, the oppressed, being the politically unable or the indigent, which are the poor, uh, economically they're unable, or the sick and outcast, which are bodily and kinship unable, or the unbelieving, those who are religiously unable, need help from those with surplus. So the wise or righteous person lives with a sense that his or her life needs to be a blessing to other people. Now, how many think that if that's your orientation right now, you're just going, I live to bring blessing to others. Is that a little different than I'm living to get ahead in my, my own life? You see, you see where the culture's at today. It's about me and where we're going, you know, us few. Or if I'm living with this idea that, you know, God is blessing my life and I am living to be a channel of blessing to other people. That's a whole different way of looking at life. And yet the scriptures are teaching this, prob this, this understanding that I just described there. So character then is better than riches, we're going to see. As a matter of fact, in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 1, which is the first proverb we're going to look at, it says, a good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. Now, you could say, well, he's speaking about reputation here, good name. But I'm saying it goes far deeper than that. It speaks ultimately of our character. Wealth should never be the prime object of our lives because it's usually at the expense of character. So if I was going to have you make a decision here today, and hopefully you'll make this decision, you know, if you were to choose today, which is more important to you, character or wealth? I would argue that every one of us should choose character. And that if you choose character, you may get wealth as well, but you've got the most important thing. That's character. Because you can be wealthy and not have character. And a lot of people are wealthy, but the, you know what? what? What they've done to get the wealth has been at the expense of themselves and their character, which is really kind of tragic, as we're going to see. As a matter of fact, it's interesting, the good name, a good name, the word good there is supplied by the translators, but it's the right idea, okay? It's the way you need to understand this text. You go, well, how do you know that, Pastor? Because in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1, this time the word good is put in there, and it says a good name is better than fine perfume. So the wisdom writers understood the necessity of being concerned about who you are. And that's what we need to understand. Who we are is very critical in this journey of life. As a matter of fact, 
Uh, John Pilcher reminds us, Proverb ranks reputation and esteem above wealth, silver, and gold, while David Hubbard says Proverbs is about relationships built on integrity. Now, how many recognize when you're reading the book of Proverbs, they usually align this to the person of Solomon? Isn't that right? The Proverbs of Solomon. And that's probably because Solomon was considered the wisest person at that time. Now, he didn't write them all, but he did collect a lot of them. And one of the great tragedies is that Solomon knew these things. And yet we see that even though Solomon now, at first, he was a person of impeccable character. He sought God. He was doing all the right things. Remember that? At the beginning, God revealed himself to him. And he said, I just want to have the wisdom to govern your people correctly. You know, I don't have the capabilities. This is your people, God. I want to do it right. God was so honored by that request that he not only gave Solomon wisdom, but what did he also do? He gave him wealth. You know, he said, you're going to, and he gave, he gave him this a tremendous amount of wealth. But then we read a little later on, Solomon did something that was against what God wanted. How many know that there are always temptations in the Christian life? There's temptations in the godly life. Anybody know that? Because we're on the path, and we're going to see this in a little while, that the majority are obviously on a broad path, and you and I are trying to follow this narrow path. And we're going to see here in verses 3 and 5, there's all kinds of pits and snares and things that, w- that come in our lives. And so Solomon was tripped up. And it says here in chapter 11 of 1 Kings and verse 1, Solomon, however, loved many foreign women. Now, the problem is the word foreign. What, what is, and the reason this was a problem, because these were the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them. And it wasn't because God was trying to be discriminatory, but he said, there's a problem with these people. He said, they're not worshiping me. They're worshiping all these idols. He says, you must not marry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after, this, after their gods. And then it says, nevertheless, even though Solomon knew all of this, it says, nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love and a very strong statement, and his wives led him astray. How many of that is powerful words, being led? We're going to read that a little later on when the young person's being led astray. And uh, we talk about that. Don't let people lead you astray. Well, Solomon was led astray, and he was a person that knew better. Then it says here, Solomon grew old. His wife's turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. And we can see the ramifications was a divided empire. So Solomon certainly chose the wrong thing. And what is really tragic, as David Hubbard points out, when wisdom failed him in his religious compromises and his oppressive use of power, not even his immense wealth could salvage his name. Because isn't it interesting? Now, when we think of Solomon, we can't think of him as, we think of him as a wise person, but we don't think of Solomon as a godly person. That's not how we equate him. As a matter of fact, you know what's really scary? When you read the great chapter of all the amazing people of faith, from the Old Testament, and that's Hebrews chapter 11. Do you find the name Solomon there? You don't. And by the way, if Solomon had not turned his heart away from God, don't you think Solomon's name would have certainly been in that list? But you know what? He lost his reputation. He lost his good name. He basically, his character was diminished. And so that's why I'm saying to us, it's better to choose character than wealth. Because even if you have wealth, you know, you may not have character. But sometimes when you have character, you can have both character and wealth, and we're going to see that in a minute. Human dignity, oh, let me go back here. Richard Clifford says, human beings, he says, are inherently social and find their happiness in society. 
without the acceptance of others, uh, oh, sorry, without the acceptance by others that is founded on esteem and trust, one becomes an unfulfilled outsider. Riches, though more immediately alluring, are less essential to the human spirit than that which enables someone to live happily with others. Now, what's he basically saying here? Simply put, he's saying, you know what, we're designed to relate to people. So you can have all the money in the world, but if you don't have relationships, you have a very poor life. You, you can't buy friends. Well, you can buy people, but you're not necessarily buying true friends, right? And isn't it sad? I think the greatest thing that I've, I've come away, the, my great takeaway from COVID, you know what it is? This very thing he's talking about. How many are noticing that probably the greatest trial in COVID, especially in central Alberta, we've been so blessed, you know, six active cases in our city right now. Isn't that amazing? You know, I think we're kind of one of the best places in the entire world to live right now. We have the greatest level of freedom. The weather's even cooperating. I mean, how much better can you ask for it? I mean, it's so amazing, right? Isn't that great? You know, but he, basically what I'm saying is, uh, the thing that I'm noticing is just the, the sense of isolation that people are feeling. How many are recognized? Probably the greatest trial is the lack of social connectedness. There's a lack of freedom in that area. And how many are just going, boy, I just, when will this ever end? I just want to be able to relate to people in a normal way. Because we were designed by God to be social. And it's made me become more cognizant and more aware of the fact that uh, we were designed to actually assemble together to worship. I, I know some of you are watching live streaming, and that's great, and I, I appreciate that you can do that. And I think it's great. Some people can't be here. But just think about uh, the, the dynamic of worshiping together. There's something different about it. Isn't that true? I mean, how many here, you've seen services by streaming, and now you're here in person. Is there a big difference? I think it's just worlds apart. And so there's a dynamic you can't have when you're sitting in your living room, even though you're in your pajamas drinking you know, your coffee or whatever. You know, that, may, that may seem convenient, but there's a lack of spiritual dynamic that's missing, a lack of connectedness and relationship. And I think that's what we're reading here from Clifford. He's bringing that out. Human dignity, uh, regardless of social standing. Look at the very next verse. I think one of the great temptations of society is to value people in terms of their social standing. How many say that's probably true? We tend to judge people based on that. And that's sad. Listen to what Proverbs 22.2 says. Rich and poor have this in common. The, maker, the Lord is the maker of them all. So what is he really teaching us here? That we're all equal. That's what he's saying. I like how Bruce Walkie points it out. He says, while material possessions create distinctions among human beings... And verse 2 teaches that rich and poor meet on a common ground before the Lord. He made both of them, thereby instructing the rich and poor to remember this basic item of human equality. And I think that's powerful. There's a sense that God loves each of us the same. Is that amazing? You know, I always marvel, you know, you know, your kids, no matter how many children you have, as a parent, you love your children. You just love them, you know. And, you know, some of them are easier to manage than others, but you just kind of love them the same. You just, they're so, it's so meaningful. It's a different relationship with each child, but you love them, and God loves us. But when we show partiality because of economic inequalities, we are unlike God. And that's what James is warning us in his letter. That's a wisdom, he's, he's taking it right from the Proverbs, I believe, wisdom literature. He says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. 
We cannot show partiality. He goes on to say, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, and I say to the poor man, you stand over there or you sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So what is he saying? You cannot discriminate based on social distinctions. He says that's wrong. We need to treat people with a sense of equality. We need to understand that every human being has dignity and value before God. I think we're living in a day with incredible tensions. How many think that's true? I mean, if you're following things in social media, you can see that there's a lot of racial tension today. Anybody know that? Anybody aware of that? There's some racial tensions. You know, sometimes as Canadians, we're, going, we're pointing out, oh, you Americans, you guys got racial tensions. I want to tell you right now, in Canada, we're not any better. We got racial tensions, you know, with, with, the, with the First Nations people. Come on, guys. There's, there's tensions. Come on. <clears throat> Same thing, you know, and, and what is he saying to us? We need to, we need to learn something from the scriptures. I believe we have a huge advantage. Think about it. We're, as I said, we, 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 have, we have gender, you know, there's gender tensions today. There's racial tensions today. There are social tensions today. But here's what we need to hear. We need to hear and be reminded, even as the Apostle Paul reminds us, that we all have an equal standing before God. How many think that's amazing? I love what he says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. So in Christ Jesus, you're all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ and have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. That's a social, uh, sorry, that's a racial distinction. He said there's no, there's no racial distinction before God. Neither slave nor free. There's no class distinction, no social distinction. How I many you know slaves were not in a good social standing in the ancient world? And then he says, neither is there male nor female. There's no, see the, you know, there's no one gender better than another before God. We're all standing on an equal playing field before him. I love this. Now, if we really let that stuff get into our system and really saw life the way God sees it, don't you think we'd begin to treat people similarly with that beautiful sense of equality and dignity? No. Men are not better than women. Women are not better than men. Isn't that great? You know, poor, rich, you know, whatever ethnic background you are, we're all standing before God. And that's where we need to see it. I think that would be so healthy. As a matter of fact, as I put in my notes here, what are the implications of this truth? Simply put, we need to treat others with deference. As a matter of fact, in the book of Philippians, Paul says we're to humble ourselves and value others above ourselves, looking not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, how many are catching on what I'm trying to get across today is I'm saying, look, if God's blessed us with riches that we, more than we need, we need to learn how to look around and see the people around us and treat people with deference and encourage them and help people and be a blessing to people. How many are catching on? We're to act like God. We're to be godly. We're to be like wise people. But I think one of the temptations of the rich today is to exploit the poor. I mean, no, that's true. That happens all the time. As a matter of fact, it's interesting in Proverbs here, in verse 7, he says the rich rule over the poor. He's not suggesting this is the way it ought to be, but he says it tends to be this way. People with more tend to have a, a, an advantage and they seem to get on top of the pile, right? And the borrower is slave to the lender. 
But then there's a little caution in the very next verse. It says, whoever sows injustice reaps calamity, and the rod they weld in fury will be broken. In other words, how many know that if we take advantage of people because of their difficulties financially, we're oppressing the poor? And guess who's going to defend them? Who do you think is going to defend the poor? God will. That's the right answer. And you're messing with God. So don't start messing with people because you might find yourself fighting with God. How many think that's not a good person to be tackling? You probably won't win that one. You see, I think that's what he's trying to get across here in verse 8. And then in verse 9, it says, The generous will themselves be blessed, for they share their food with the poor. I'm arguing, hey, let's be generous. Why don't we say, hey, I want to be like God. I want to behave like God. I want to act like God. I want to demonstrate the same spirit that God has. I think righteous people should be kind people, should be compassionate people, should be generous people. How many say, yeah, I, I agree with that. As a matter of fact, when I read the New Testament, it tells me to clothe myself with those very characteristics in the book of Colossians. And then I read an incident in the life of the, uh, the nation of Judah. Remember when they were trying to rebuild the walls and Nehemiah shows up on the scene and he, you know, they're coming back from the exile and the city's in ruins and, <clears throat> I mean, the place is a disaster and the people are exposed and there's no walls and, and so Nehemiah comes on, he's the new governor and he actually at his own personal expense starts to feed people and he gets them motivated and they're building the walls and right in the middle of the building project, they run into a problem. And Nehemiah chapter five points it out. It says, now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. They were, some were saying, we are sons and daughters are numerous and in order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying we're mortgaging our fields and vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine. So there was a famine too. And on top of that, you know, the Persians were ruling over them and they had to pay their taxes to the king. And they said we had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we've had to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. They were selling their children into slavery so in order for them to eat. Wow, how many think that's a terrible situation? So now, notice what it says. Uh, here's Nehemiah's response to this. I believe it was a godly response. It says, when I heard their outcry on these charges, and I'm going to paraphrase it, he said, I was ticked. <laughs> he says, I was very angry. He was really upset with these guys. You say, well, why was he upset? Well, look what it says. I pondered them in my mind. I was thinking about what to do. How many think it's a wise thing when you're upset? Probably better think before you act. Isn't that true? Because you're probably going to do something stupid if you act when you're upset. How many get that? So here's, here's, you're learning something. All the people that tend to get upset and go do something, you need to take a time out. I always jokingly say that. Take time out and think. I pondered this in my mind, and then I accused the nobles and the officials. I told them, you're charging your own people interest. By the way, that was forbidden in the law. So they were breaking the law. So he's the governor. He's saying, hey, come on, you guys. You're doing what's wrong in the sight of God. In verse 9, he says, so I continued, what are you doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile neighbors? And a little later on, he goes on to say, if you guys don't do the right thing, we're going to excommunicate you. I'm going to shake you out. I'm going to make sure God's going to deal with you. He kind of threatened these guys, and they backed off, and uh, he made them repay what they had taken from these poor people. How many think that was amazing to have a leader like that? He got on it. Number three, it says a proper attitude before God and the consequences. This is verse four, sorry. Humility is the fear of the Lord. Its wages are riches, honor, and life. Okay, let's stop there for a second. So now he's talking about the reward of being doing the right thing, the reward of walking in wisdom, the reward of choosing character. 
Its wages are riches, honor, and life. But this little phrase at the beginning seems a little obscure to me. Humility is the fear of the Lord. Is that a synonymous idea? I like what Bruce Walke says. The only way to deal with a discriminatory attitude, because we've been talking about that, right? We've been talking about don't discriminate, don't discriminate, don't discriminate. Well, how do you change that attitude? How do you move from being arrogant? How do you move from, you know, you know I'm so used to having my way? Or, you know, like people that are wealthy, they tend to develop arrogance. Come on, let's be honest, right? I don't think you try to do that. I think it just naturally happens. You just think you're better. You, you got it better. You just think better. You, all these things. How do you change all of that attitude? Well, the remedy is humility, a religious term denoting the renunciation of human sufficiency of the sort associated with the fear of the Lord. See, when you fear God, what's really happening is you're saying, I can't do this apart from you, God. I, I'm in dependency on you. The, the antidote to pride is humility. The antidote to this is understanding I'm dependent on God. I can't do it. You know what I think COVID's teaching us in our world today? That we were arrogant as a culture. We were arrogant as human beings on the planet. We thought we don't need God. We can just live our own life, do our own thing. You know, we got our own medical people. Everyone's gonna take care of us. Our technology is so superior. How many know all of a sudden none of that's working? Are we catching on yet? Are we figuring it out yet? How many are figuring out we really can't make life apart from God? This is a minor virus, guys. Could you imagine if we were living through world wars right now like they were a number of years ago? Can you imagine all the hardship people have gone through through history to recognize our great need for God? But you know, we had gotten pretty fat and sassy. Isn't that true? Think about it. This is catching us you know, off guard here you know, a little bit. As a matter of fact, he goes on to say, the failure of the gullible to spot danger arises from their arrogant refusal to submit to God. Richard Clifford explains the text this way, the word anana should be, rather be translated humbling in the sense of reduction to a lowly state. Humiliation can lead one to know one's place in God's world, which is one of the definitions of the fear of God. How many have ever been humiliated? Anybody ever had that experience in life? Has God, ever, you know, has God ever said, you know what, I'm going to take you down a notch or two? Have you ever had that experience where you've just been humbled and you're living at a low estate for a while? I mean, it really reduces you and it changes your whole thinking. And it's a healthy thing that happens. I believe that it helps us get our minds back into the right place. He goes, uh, the axiom probably is meant to counter the view that humiliation is an unqualified evil. In other words, he's saying it's not all bad, you know. I, I can look back to some humbling experiences in my life where I actually probably learned the greatest life's lessons. Anybody else can say, it probably was in the most difficult times in my life that I learned the greatest life lessons. I probably learned more from some of the mistakes I made than all the successes I made. Anybody relate to that? That's where I'm at. So I see the value of what he's saying here. On the contrary, a humbling can help one recognize one's place and foster an earnest search for God who is actually the source of all blessings. Isn't that great? So if you and I are in the right place, that's good. So I would say that the, the, the really walking in the humility before God, walking in the fear of God, actually releases God's blessings into our lives. I think that's powerful. Let me move on to the second value, is that character defines our relationships. How many know who we are and how who we are shapes how we're going to treat people. 
Isn't that true? And, and think of it this way. It affects the kind of influence I have. It affects my ability to mentor other people, particularly my children. And it affects the choices I make in my life and it affects the people I associate with. All of these things are affected. Here we're looking at the path we're walking on and the type of life we're living. And you know this idea of character? You know that word really means God, it means, it comes from the word cameo, it means carving. God's carving something into our lives. He's carving who you're becoming. Proverbs 22.3 says, the prudent see danger and take refuge, but the simple keep going and pay the penalty. Now remember, the simple are the inexperienced. The simple are the people that don't know. They lack knowledge. They lack understanding. They lack wisdom. Verse 5 says, in the path of the wicked are snares and pitfalls, but those who would preserve their life stay far from them. So, our behavior is being shaped by our character. How many say that's true? Who you are is defining and determining the choices you're making. Isn't that true? Of course it is. It's affected by what we value. Your life is basically living out your values. You don't know that. Maybe we don't always think about it. But, you know, if we're making bad decisions, maybe we've got to go back and say, what am I really valuing? What are my values? Am I valuing the right things? When we truly revere God, when we truly are dependent on God, when we're truly seeking God, we're going to make wise decisions. And that's going to keep us from making these dangerous decisions, these pitfalls and snares that we run into. The word prudent is interesting in the text here. And the word simple. You know why? Because prudent is in the singular and simple is in the plural. And it kind of, is a, and under, underneath there's a tone that there's fewer prudent people than there are simple people. How many say that's probably true? There's few people, fewer people that are wise today than there are foolish. There are fewer people today walking on a narrow path than the people who are walking on the broad path that leads to destruction. Jesus is basically teaching us the majority is not right. How many kind of figured this out now? The majority opinion, shock of all shocks in our culture today is not the right opinion. Is that a shocking statement? No, because Jesus said it. And so now we're being taught, hey, here's the right road. Here's the right path. It's, it's, it's a challenging path. And we think earlier, we find that in the proverb, what's going on? Let's just take the literal picture. A father's talking to his son and warning him of certain dangers. But, you know, we could apply this. A mother's sitting down talking to her daughter, and we just move all the gender things, okay? But let's go back to chapter 1 for a minute. He's warning the son to not look for wealth, in the wrong way. Isn't that true? Because the first one in chapter one, he's telling him, don't join the gang. Remember that? Chapter one, verse 15, he says, my son, do not go along with them. Do not set foot on their paths. For their feet rush into evil and they are swift to shed blood. This is the gang. You know, this is all poetry. How many see the imagery? They rush into evil. Isn't that interesting? They're racing towards what? They want to destroy somebody. It says, how useless to spread a net where every bird can see it. How many know if you're setting a trap and the animal sees it, that's not a good thing to do. That's kind of a stupid thing, right? You're not going to trap that animal. But then it says this, these men lie in wait for their own blood and they ambush only themselves. So he said, the people who are seeking after here ill-gotten gain. Such are the path of all who go after ill-gotten gain. It takes away the life of those who get it. So what is he warning us against here? He's saying, look, 
Don't choose wealth. Choose character. You see, if you're going after wealth and you're compromising who you are and you're going to get it in a terrible way, you're going to lose out. He's saying the trap that you're setting for someone else is actually the trap you're going to fall into and, get, and get, be destroy yourself. Isn't that what he's saying to his son? Exactly what he's saying to them. So not only is the danger of greed being acted upon in the heart of the simple, the inexperienced youth, but we also see another danger that he warns against. So let's just go back a little bit. What are the two prevailing things in our culture today that young people are being pressured to, to do? First of all, they're, they're being pressured to make a choice in life based on finances. You know, and sometimes Christian parents, we, you know, we can do this. We can say, choose this vocation, it'll pay you well. Here's what I'm going to say. I think you need to seek the face of God and say, God, you created me. What is it you want me to do? Don't make decisions based on how much money you're going to make. That's, that's, I'm making an application from this. Choose what God is leading you to do. Okay? Two things will happen. Number one, you will find that if you do what God wants you to do, you were designed to do it, you'll actually be better at it, you'll enjoy it more, and sometimes you'll even profit from it. Okay? Number one. If you choose strictly on the basis of money, you're going to lose, you lose, it diminishes you in the process, it diminishes your character, you're probably out of sync with who you really were designed to be, you're not going to be that happy, you'll make the money, but you'll feel like you never really fulfill what you should be doing. So I'm speaking to younger people, listen, find out what God wants you to do. Number two, what's the other great temptation young people are struggling with today? And that's immorality. We're living in the most, at, at a time where sexual immorality is prevalent in our culture. Now, I'm gonna shock you. It was far more perverse in the first century by a long shot. But we're moving towards that. And just remember, Rome grew as an empire but then diminished. And all of these cultures that grew and diminished, if you study them carefully, which I like to do, you start to find out all civilizations are destroyed from within. That's what you need to understand. And so one of the expressions of a, a culture that is in decline is that they become sexually perverse. True of every culture. By the way, we're headed there. So what is the next warning that we find in the book of Proverbs here? Back to chapter 22, verse 14, he says, the, the, oh, okay, I see what I did. The mouth of the adulterous woman is a deep pit. A man who's under the Lord's wrath falls into it. Now, we see a lot of warnings here against falling, being seduced by the immoral woman, Okay. You could change the gender. Young woman being seduced by an immoral guy. Okay, same, same thing. Okay, but notice it says here, um, this whole idea of this adultery is expressed simply, what strikes me is you usually think, okay, if I, do, I commit adultery, I'll be judged. But that's not what it says here. How many are seeing that the person who is... Actually, the adultery is God's judgment on the person because this person has already displeased God and God allows them to fall into the pit. Isn't that how it reads it here? Read it again. A man who is under the Lord's wrath falls into it, falls into that pit, falls into that danger. Now, I like what um, Richard Clifford points out. He, he declares that anyone taken in by her words must be an enemy of God 
for it is inconceivable that a friend of God would be allowed to fall under her spell. So we need to understand something. When people are falling into these things, there was something previous to that that actually led to that. That just tells you how important it is to have good character because good character keeps you from this pit. That's what he's saying. Look at chapter seven. This is a younger person again with persuasive words. She leads him astray. Isn't that interesting? Twice now we hear that word, led astray. The gang leads the young person astray. The seductive words lead the young person astray or the simple astray. It could be even an older person. The simple is the inexperienced, the unknowing, the unwise person. She seduces him with her smooth talk and at once he follows her like an ox going to the slaughter. How many think that's a powerful imagery? He's going to the slaughterhouse and he doesn't even know it. Okay, like a deer stepping into a noose. Till an arrow pierces his liver like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life, his soul. You're, you're going to lose your soul pulling this, this stunt. That's what he's telling him. He's warning against this. Wow. But character is expressed in how we shape those who we're responsible for. And here in verse 6, I think uh, I put down dedicating our children to God. I think in Proverbs, we are responsible now. He's moved away from the young person being instructed to the mentor or the parent who's being instructed. Look what he says here. Start children off in the way they should go, and even when they're old, they will not turn from it. Now that word, start children off, it's the word that we translate in the King James, train a child in the way he should go. So it's training. But actually, literally, the word is dedicate. That you could, it's like dedicating a building. You're de dedicating the temple. You're dedicating this child to the ways of God. That's what you need to understand. Now, I need to make a caution here because a lot of us read this verse and we think, take it as a promise. Don't do that. Because what happens is it causes a lot of problems in its application. Proverbs are principles. Proverbs are observations in life. So this is, what is he saying? He says, listen, if you do this, this will probably be the outcome. Good chance, but not always. How many know bad parents have good kids and good parents end up with bad kids? That's because there's another, there's another proverb. How many know proverbs, you have to take them with other proverbs? Look what it says in verse 15. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Do you know what it's basically telling us? That when we start out in life, we're not that smart. As a matter of fact, it's even deeper than that. Folly is, is actually morally deficient. You have to instruct people in morality. That's what he's basically saying. You have to teach people the right way. It doesn't happen by osmosis. It, they have to be taught. They have to be instructed. As a matter of fact, it says the rod of discipline will drive it far away. What far away? Moral deficiency, the folly. Now, the rod of discipline, this is another abused text. Some people think, well, this is always spanking. It may or may not be. Sometimes discipline, the rod of discipline, is simply verbal instruction. It depends on the child. So sometimes you have to do a little of both. But I'm just pointing out, you know, beating your kids is not the way to get them to do the right thing. You know, it takes wisdom to instruct your children. And I like what um, Henry Ironside clearly says. Parents need to remember it's not enough to tell their little ones of Jesus and his rejection or to warn them of the ways of the world, but they must see to it that in their own lives they amplify the instructions. This will account above all else in the training of the young. What's he basically saying? People only learn from you 
by your model. It's not just the words you say. You know, I came to a conclusion a long time ago as a pastor, I can't change one life but my own. And I need God's help for that. But it would be hypocritical of me to get up here every week and tell you to change, and I'm not changing. You see, that's problematic. So I feel like the greatest thing I can do to help shape your life and influence your life is by working on my life and seeing God change me. And I feel like if I keep changing, it'll change my thinking, it'll change my values, it'll change my uh, tone, it'll change the words, it'll change the emphasis, it'll change me and then in effect influence you. And that's what we need to understand. Okay, character is revealed in the way we communicate to others. I love this. Wise words are gracious words. I'm going to put three proverbs together and then we're going to close the service. Drive out the mocker and out go strife. Quarrels and insults are ended. One who loves a pure heart and who speaks with grace will have the king for a friend. The eyes of the Lord keep watch over knowledge, but he frustrates the words of the unfaithful. Okay, so how many know that if you listen to a person long enough, you get to figure out where they're coming from? You get an idea where their heart is. As a matter of fact, I would say our words are telling on us all the time. That's why we read Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart. Why? For everything you do flows from your heart. And then it's interesting, the very next verse, keep your mouth free of perversity, keep corrupt talk from your lips. This is not saying don't swear. No, he's saying, look, if you want to, how, how do you keep your mouth free of perversity? What's the right answer? I just, with the verse before it, what's the right answer? You gotta change your heart. It's a heart issue. So if our hearts change, our words change. How many know that's true? So what we really need to ask is, God, I, this is not just you know, controlling my mouth and trying to say, I'm not gonna say bad words, or you know, I'm gonna try to say nicer words, or I'm not gonna get upset with people and all that. No, it's a deeper issue and a bigger problem. It's a heart issue. And so what we need to be doing is praying, God, help me to change my heart. I need to have the right thinking, the right attitudes, because it's going to affect even the tone of my words. You know, gracious words. And talk about someone who spoke gracious words. You know, you just, you think of Jesus here in Luke's gospel, chapter 4 and verse 22. Uh, I'll get back to this. But in Luke 4.22, it says, all spoke well of him, speaking of Christ, and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. So I don't know about you, but one of my prayers is, Lord, I want to be just like you. That's my goal. And so what is Christ like? You know, he was gracious. He spoke graciously. So if we're not being like that, we're being unchristlike. We're acting like the ungodly. We're acting like the fool. We're not acting like a wise person. So we need to get that. And then just go back to verse 10 here for a minute. We'll go back over this. because so I think this is important. In verse 10, it lists three results of getting rid of a mocker. Now you remember who the mocker is. The mocker is the, is the strongest person that's against God. We have a lot of mockers in our culture today. I don't know if you know that. Those are people who have written God off and they think everything we're doing is all this stuff. He says, if you get rid of a mocker, you're sparing yourself arguments, quarreling, and insults. As a matter of fact, an old rabbinic proverb says something like this, when a fool leaves the room, it seems as though a wise man entered. <laughs> I kind of like that. <clears throat> so, this is how mockers respond to criticism. They're defensive. They're self-protective. 
and they respond to any perceived assault with a counterattack. In other words, they don't receive correction. They're not humble. They don't go, okay, maybe there's truth here. What can I do to learn or grow or change? No, they see themselves as having it all together. This proverb says that it's often not the situation, but the people involved in the situation who causes problems. How many know that sometimes is the Sometimes it is the situation. Sometimes a poor communication. But sometimes it's just the person. Their, their attitude is wrong. Their heart is wrong. Isn't that true? Of course. You know, sometimes it's necessary to remove a difficult individual to preserve the harmony of a community. And one commentator said it a lot different than that. He says, sometimes people are just jerks. <laughs> you know? But how do we respond to that? Sometimes we try to win them, reason with them, but eventually we recognize it's not even getting through. Sometimes you just have to move on. That's true. How many think these guys knew what they're talking about, these wise writers? I think they knew what people were about because they were inspired by God. God knows the nature of the human heart. Okay, <clears throat> let me just close with this. You know, we've just basically come to the end of a big, stri a big strip of uh, Proverbs. See, chapters one to nine is a unit. Chapters 10, verse one, all the way to chapter 22, verse 16, is 375 single Proverbs. The next section is different. But let me just say this. As we come to the end of these, these are the closing arguments that one can either become a student of wisdom and a gracious member of an adult society or an example of folly and a curse to society. So that's why I entitled the sermon this morning, you know, will the real you please stand up? Because you and I have a choice. You know, the wise writers are saying, choose character. Choose to walk in the way of wisdom. Grow up. Become the right kind of person. Good things happen. You'll avoid a lot of problems. You'll encounter other ones, but you'll avoid a lot of the ones that you're self-inflicted problems. Isn't that true? So let's stand as we close the service this morning. You know, I was thinking of the book of Joshua. Remember Joshua? Comes to the end of his life, and he says to the people, he says, choose you this day whom you will serve. Remember that's that great challenge he gave to the nation. He's the leader. Choose you today who, whom you will serve. And then what does he say? As for me and my house, we're gonna serve the Lord. Isn't that great? I think we have to make choices in life. I think it's important we make the right choices. And so, you know, when we come to a service, you know, we can be very passive. We can sit here and listen. But I'm going to ask you to do something today. I'm going to ask you to make a choice. I'm going to ask you to choose character above everything else. I'm going to ask you to say, God, I need help to become the right kind of character and not just a character. There's a lot of characters out there. I want to be the right kind of character. I want to be a godly character. I want to walk in wisdom. You know, as for me and my house, we're choosing to serve the Lord. That's our choice. And when I get up in the morning, I want to make that choice every day. Today I'm getting up and I choose to serve you. Today I want to honor you. That's why I love the Lord's Prayer. Today I want to honor you. Today I want to glorify you. Today I want your kingdom to come. Today I want your will to be done in me and through me. Today I want you to deliver me from evil and lead me not into temptation. I, I want you to provide what I need today. I want you to direct my day. I'm choosing today to serve you. Choose you this day. Whom will you serve? 
And will you put character above everything else? Say, Lord, I want to be just like you. That's my goal. Because if you don't have a goal, you're not going to hit it. I'm a goal-oriented person. You don't know that about me? Some of you do. Very highly goal-oriented. I have a goal. I want to grow up and be just like Jesus. That's my goal. So lately, I've been praying certain prayers. I'm saying, Lord, clothe me with the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, clothe me with compassion, kindness, generosity. I want to be more like you. Every day, I want to be more like you. Maybe that's where you're at today. How many of you are saying, you know, Pastor, I want to join you. I want to join you on the journey. I want to choose today to serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Some of you, that's great. I think you have to define it and say, yeah, I'm going to do that. That's where I'm going with this. So let's pray. Let's ask God to help us do that. Sometimes there's things in our lives that need to be taken out. Lord, just remove it. Deal with this stuff. Take this stuff out of my life. Take this junk out of my life. I want to become more like you. So Father, we do come to you right now. We're praying. Lord, we want to choose character over wealth. We want to choose wisdom over folly. We want to choose your grace over human self-sufficiency. We're choosing humility, which is dependency on you, rather than trusting in what humanity or what we can do. Lord, we're making choices today. We're choosing your way, Father. We know it's a narrow way, and we know that you're going to keep working on us and transforming us. Lord, we want your kingdom to come. We want your will to be done in our homes. We want your will to be done in our community. We want your will to be done in our nation, oh God, and in the nations of the world. We want your kingdom to come. Even so, Lord Jesus, would you come again and invade this planet with your presence, oh God. Would you return, Lord, and eradicate, Lord, the sin and the death and the suffering and the rebellion, Father? Would you come? But even while you're tearing, Lord, help us to be doing your will. Help us, Lord, to make every opportunity to see others coming into your kingdom before that door of safety, that, that door of refuge comes to a close. And then people will see you face to face, either as Savior or as judge. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.